Welcome to this edition of the Quill Report in Weekly Review. This is November 22nd, uh, 2021. Uh, the opportunity for us as uh, members of the Quill Report to come and present the top 10 list from the last uh, last week's t- uh, articles that the readers chose as top 10. Now, they didn't know they were choosing. As we've said before, we publish about 56 articles every week, eight every day, and uh, readers go and they look at the page that comes out weekly, and and then they click on those stories and articles that seem of interest to them, and then we just count them up, and they, they becomes the top 10. And I'm saying that too, by the way, just as another reason, is that some people think that the only way the Akura shows up is when you come on Tuesdays when you get the newsletter and the top 10 list is there uh, and you may think that maybe they're the top 10 for just in general out there in general but it's not it's what the readers of the Equilibrium Report are reading from the Equilibrium Report's uh, publications uh, and postings uh, day by day so just as a good clarification on that so you can on any day go to uh, the Equilibrium and be, join in and click on articles to you know, have your uh, vote counted as for what articles of the top 10. So anyway, uh, it's uh, our privilege, uh, Dr. Dominic Aquila and Mr. Paul Harrell uh, to come together and just a review to tease out, to encourage you, even if you're listening to this after uh, the fact, uh, to know what these articles spoke about. So, Paul, it's good yes, to uh, be with you again. And uh, this absolutely. Day, yeah, it's a special day in my case with my uh older son's oldest son is uh, birthday today so i always think about that and uh my i'm dominic my son is dominic uh, second and his son is dominic third so we have oh a little, wow uh, yeah so he is uh, um his birthday's today and he, that's cool that's that's really neat i i didn't know that dominic uh <laughs> You so, know how uh, we have a dynasty going here. Yeah, you? you have a dynasty. You are a biological success story. That's right. Sure. Well, with 13 grandchildren and now seven great grands. So, yes. Wow. And by the way, I found out your birth, your age last week. And I thought about it this morning and I said, if I have an opportunity, so I have to take it now that if you multiply that uh, your age times two and add one, you'll have my birthday birthday at my age. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really know. bad at I'm really bad at math on the fly. So I'll uh, okay. I'll go back and listen to this. Yeah, later just write it down and you calculator can, uh, out. Right. Uh, okay. Well, well remember when teachers would remember when your math teacher Dominic yeah. would say, uh, you know, you need to know this because you won't always have a calculator in your pocket. That was yeah. a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't. You, well, you always trusted the calculator. That wasn't it wasn't a lie. So you didn't learn your tables. Uh, multiplication tables really well. So what's your H times two and then add one. So uh, we'll figure, I'll let you figure it out later. And uh, maybe you can ask your <laughs> wife uh, and she can help you out because I'm okay. sure that she is more capable than you uh, are. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the top 10. The first and number one article is uh, written uh, really, it's an assessment by the <clears throat> first Presbyterian church of Fort Oglethorpe, Alabama. No, uh, excuse me. That's not all them. It's Georgia and Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, just a suburb of Chattanooga, just south of uh, Chattanooga in North Georgia. 
And it deals with the national partnership, an assessment of that. Now, that we spoke about the national partnership last week because uh, someone most likely within the national partnership uh, released uh, emails that go went all the way back to 2013 until the present. And it's a group that uh, claims not to be a group within the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, but uh, it is a group. Uh, it's a loosely affiliated group, but they had a, a mailing list. They put out emails that dealt with um, things that were current in the life of the church, especially when the voting issues were to come up, either Presbyterians or General Assembly, and uh, they would get uh, talking points or direction or guidance, uh, whatever phrase would be helpful uh, to, the, to the group that received the emails. And so uh, I think it printed out to 400 and some pages and uh, so it was quite a, a lengthy and quite a big, um, as they say in the news industry, a dump of articles or emails. So anyway, it the the pastor of the church was re, received an email from one of the uh, head leaders of National Partnership, uh, accusing him of uh, uh, trafficking in stolen emails and confidential emails. Uh, he and that. Apparently that email went out to a number of others right after it was first released and it was, be, uh, you know, out in the uh, Internet. And uh, now none of the people who posted or referred to them or pointed to a link where they could be downloaded um, had anything to do with a procuring, uh, stealing, uh, borrowing, violating confidence and oaths and all that kind of stuff. But there was a like a cease and desist kind of thing. But and uh, so uh, the session of First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, the pastor there had been accused of that. And so he took the matter to them and said, guys, um, this is what is being alleged. Um, I don't believe it's valid, but uh, I'm going to just place it before you and you determine and the first thing they said is they said, well, this is new to us. We don't know anything about the national partnership. And so they went through the emails. And as a result, they came up with this um, eight to 10 page um, uh, overview and assessment of what they saw from national partners as they spoke about themselves. And so that's what this is uh, about. So if you want to know what the national partnership is, uh, we can thank the session of uh, the First Presbyterian Church for Oglethorpe, Georgia, for doing such a great job to provide us that overview. So at least it's not a uh, cloaked in darkness group anymore. The light has been shined and uh, we can uh, thank them for that. So that's that's the background. And so this received most of the hits. I mean, it did. Number one. Went, went viral, as they say, in the Internet world. Yeah, you know, it was good. I, I, I appreciated the descriptions here, the critique, um, just kind of laying it out about what this is. I mean, it's really it's labeled really good about the national partnership. What is the national partnership? Of course, we know that, but it helps to define, you know, uh, the agenda of the national partnership concerns regarding the national partnership. Uh, and then there's a subheader here, a secretive tactics. And I was talking to uh, a, a friend of mine I go to church with the other day, and he was saying that, uh, you know, 
the, the his, his fundamental problem with the national partnership, and I thought this was good because I hadn't heard this anywhere, is that it just appears like uh, now that we have a window into the emails and what was being discussed and this kind of win every vote mentality, it just kind of appears that it was an attempt, uh, whether in t- intentionally or unintentionally, to set up a false priesthood within the PCA. And I thought that was an, you know interesting terms of language because I hadn't heard that anywhere and um yeah, I I think I think that's uh, uh you know I think, feel like that's a way a lot of a people a lot of people are now seeing this matter of fact article number nine will tie into this as well with uh Sarah Morris's article here uh about this uh about this very revelation exactly it will so uh if you've heard about it or haven't heard about it although it did make quite a splash uh, this at least that we can thank the session here, as I said, for providing us uh, background data that is really important uh, because just reading through the emails, this they were able to garner the things that are here so they didn't have to uh, make it up. They just took their own words and just framed them into some order so that you we would now know what the national partnership is. So <laughs> we can uh, thank them for that. Well, the second Article number two, uh, most hit article, was by John D. Payne, who's a pastor of Christ uh, Church Presbyterian in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Uh, he is also the uh, president of uh, the Gospel Reformation Network. Sometimes you'll see it as GRN, Gospel Reformation Network. Should we go, stay, or should we go? Because uh, this is sort of a tense time in the PCA. So the national partnership issue is one. We've got these votes that are taking place in the presbyteries on what we are summarized as Overture 23 and Overture 37, which deal with putting wording into the Book of Church order of the Presbyterian Church of America with regard to what does it mean to be above reproach. and. Uh, especially because of the revoice issues that started back in July of uh, 2018. And it's really sort of come full force in the life of the church, created a lot of debate. So um, there's just questions about um, what is the viability of the PCA? Does it mean that it's going woke? Is it uh, is the progressiveness within it uh, taking over? Uh, and that concerns those who count themselves as more confessional uh, base. So what uh, John Payne is uh, doing here, uh, writing out of in the magazine that is produced by the Gospel Reformation Network, uh, is just encouraging uh, elders, mainly since they're the ones who would do the voting, uh, ruling and teaching elders to let's you know, take a deep breath. Let's wait a little bit um, and let's give us some t- the time for these things to be discussed a little bit more. Uh, now is not the time to do it. The way I would always frame it is there have been folks that are on the fringes of the both sides of the main two groups, the confessional on one side and the progressive on the other. So the fringes uh, there has already been some departure, some withdrawing and going into other places or creating another uh, other play- works. So at this point, that's he is saying, as we who are sort of in the broad middle 
between these two groups and the debates going on. Let's not uh, rush to judgment yet. There will always be time, if need be, to uh, take that action, but now's not the time to do that. So it's just a compelling story, that an article that John Payne uh, drafts for us. So I think at this point, that's where I think most uh, of the uh, ruling and teaching elders that might be open to considering the uh, possibility of withdrawing are at this point. Let's wait. Yeah, and, you know, the subheadline here, it's not time to depart the PCA. It's time to contend for the PCA. I would I would say I tend to agree with that because of these national partnership emails. And what I mean by that is um, if you assume that the reason we can now read these emails is because somebody from within the national partnership thought the rest of the denomination needs to read them. I, I see that as a good thing. Uh, you mentioned let's have the debate. Well, now that seems to be what's going to happen here. And so that that's why it is kind of a wait and see approach, but wait meaning stay and contend and, you know, present, uh, present whatever arguments need to be made in a Christ honoring a respectful way. I, I think that is definitely the right way to go for now. Absolutely. So uh, just I think you'll enjoy reading, John. It's a very reasonable uh, article, and uh, I think the caution that he gives is well worth it. Uh, so that's the reason I, I think he res- people responded by reading, taking time to reflect, read and reflect on what he had to write. Now, number three takes us in a little different direction, uh, but it really sort of harkens back a little bit. Uh, and it's one that's been in the even in the general uh, po- uh, news population and the news uh, arena about a university professor who at uh, Old Dominion University in Virginia uh, wrote a book that aims to destigmatize pedophilia because there's no quote immorality in being attracted to children. And so this uh, author, uh, Walker's last name. Uh, says says here, uh, I want to be extremely clear that child sexual abuse is never okay, Walker said. But having an attraction to minors as long as it isn't acted on doesn't mean that the person who has these attractions is doing something wrong. Now, if you put that phrase, and this is what caught the attention, I think, of many readers and even people within general public who are not even within the church. Uh, what caught the attention is you put that phrase alongside of uh, what is used as referred to as side B um, definition of, uh, Christ- of uh, homosexuality and Christ- uh, same sex attracted that is not acted on, but it's OK uh, as long as you don't act on it, uh, they, they really sound almost the same. Uh, so in the little headline, uh, the teaser headline underneath, it says, here we go again. Pedophilia is now being defined with a side B definition. MAP, that's M-A-P, stands for minor attracted persons, refers to someone who has preferential attractions to minors. And what Walker said then in the quote, in light of that, was it doesn't mean that a person who has these attractions is doing something wrong. 
Well, that even in the secular world at this point in time, uh, that didn't stand well. And so, as we'll see, there's a the number eight article uh, came out not too long after this interview that is being reported on in that article, which is number three on the top 10. Number eight now comes up and says school places professor on leave after controversial interview defending, quote, minor attracted persons, MAP. So you watch now what's going to probably happen is uh, over the next um, five, six months to the year, we will be referring to MAP uh, because there will be the move to try and legitimize uh, the same sex attract of uh, min- minor attracted persons attraction to minors, but who say we never act on it and they we're going to have to wrestle with it. But you'll come back and remember these articles that started it out uh, that even the school, Old Dominion University, said that right now is a bridge too far. And they've uh, suspended uh, the teacher. He placed him on leave of absence. Uh, because of these controversial things. And it's interesting that how uh, the students uh, overwhelmingly in a, you know, in a very uh, liberal kind of uh, setting, college and university, uh, you know, uh, signed petitions to have the professor put on leave and maybe even uh, released from uh, his position at the university. So uh, it, it just we need to pay attention to the uh, what happened long ago, 40, 50 years ago, there was an agenda to legitimize, to remove the stigma of homosexuality. And it started in culture. And then from culture, it went into the life of the church. And now we're dealing with it with talking about side B, side A, and sort of parsing and nuancing things. And now we're starting with pedophilia. Here we go again. Uh, yeah, this, we, you know, we referenced this during the podcast last week, Dominic, uh, and we knew it was going to be in the top 10 and it was put up there specifically because this is so familiar. Um, so I'm reading this here. You've already read it. I want to be this when I was, I was hearing you read it. This was my thought. I want to be extremely clear that child sexual abuse is never okay. It's like, okay. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, why do you even feel the need to make that statement, right? Like that makes me, I want to be extremely clear. Well, it's self-evident. It is extremely clear. And then she follows it up or he follows it up. We're not really sure with, but, and I know a little bit of something of the 13 years I've been married uh, to my wife. She says, you know, when you come and apologize and then you follow it up with, but it kind of negates everything that you just said. Exactly. Uh, but having an attraction to minors, as long as it isn't acted on, doesn't mean that the person who has those attractions isn't doing something wrong. And as you mentioned, Old Dominion University, secular society is 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 for, you know, thankfully is outraged. Right. It's outraged by this and that it's a bridge too far. And I, I'm very thankful for that. At the same time, I'm wondering if there aren't woke pastors where we could say, cue the sermons to repent of idolizing sexual norms that might be on the way. Uh, and then I, and then the other thought that comes to mind is this acronym you mentioned map. Uh, I don't know if anyone, minor attracted persons, it puts Dora, the explorer, the explorer in a completely new light. When you get to that part where it's like, I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. It's like, Whoa, no, I'm not the map. 
Yes. And uh, that's exactly right. So uh, anyway, it's this right now is just the historic rendition. Somebody's written a book, uh, gives it an acronym, seeking to destigmatize and make it more legitimate that we accept people who are pedophiliacs. And and uh, and but we're saying there's going to be a side B pedophilia and a side A. And that's what's coming yes. around the and corner. And, uh, well, yeah. Like, are we going to have parades? Are we going to have map parades, yep. you know, pretty yes. soon? Yes, that's what will happen. That's what happens is it, it gets into the culture and uh, there will be ways of uh, in dealing with that. So and, and, um, and, 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 yeah. and then you're going to have I'm sorry to keep harping on this, but I yep. mean, if we if we go through the line, then you're going to have a growing, uh, you know, outrage you're going to have a growing anger a growing disgust by people who don't agree with this uh, because you know it, it's not even that they don't agree with it they they hate it they they abhor it as they should because this is something that's really wrong but if you look at what hap- what what's happened with the homosexuality issue eventually you, then you come up with these stories about how you know, I was this way as a child and I was always made to feel terrible by other Christians and I was made to be feel terrible by the church and how they treated the way I felt and yada, yada, yada. You know, then it becomes something that's normalized. And, you know, I know those on the on the left don't like this idea of a slippery slope, but I mean, we're laying it out here for you. I, I don't understand how it can even be an argument to be had that things get progressively worse the more you allow. And we talked about this last week on the program, uh, you know, referencing that article about, you know, the end of the uh, Christian consensus. Where did it begin? But I mean, look at the slope and and look at the uh, maybe it's a, a, a slope that's not as steep, but it affects the church and it puts the church on the same trajectory as the culture where, it, you know, it should be the other way around. Absolutely. So uh, that's uh, those are articles number three and number eight that uh, we'll deal with. Now <clears throat> we move to uh, number four, which takes us back in history to the founding of uh, early Boston uh, and also parts of the world. But uh, there was a pastor in the Congregational Church in the early and uh, mid 1700s, a name. Cotton Mather. He, the Mather family, was quite well known and well insulated and uh, part of the life of the church. Uh, there was also Increase Mather and a number of other Mather brothers who and uh, relatives who were uh, pastors in the church. And the issue that they that this deal with is it's titled Reverend Cotton Mather and the 18th Century Battle over Smallpox Inoculation. And so um, this is an opportunity to look in history and say what has happened with uh, pandemics or epidemics from the past and how have Christians responded. And this is an article in the Brownstone Institute uh, written by Steve uh, Templeton. And in it, he brings up Count Mather because he wrote on it and this, as well as Increase Mather uh, when the smallpox was uh quite prominent and uh, t- being quite destructive. In fact, uh, I think uh, says here in the on, it is unknown how many people died of smallpox in the 3000 years. It has been in fact, it has likely infected humans, but it is been estimated in the 20th century alone, 
to have killed more than 300 million people, which is much, much more than the Spanish flu or the uh, or the coronavirus that we're COVID-19 that we're dealing with now. So the question was uh, what how to deal with the smallpox epidemic. It was quite uh, virulent and uh, powerful. Uh, the in fact, the I said virulent it comes now along a technique known as variolation, derived from the Latin name for virus, variola, meaning spotted, because the smallpox left a person pocked uh, with spots, began to be adopted in the West. Its origins are really unknown. With variolation, scabs of smallpox sufferers were uh, of were uh, were ground up and dry. the scabs of the smallpox sufferers were ground up and dried and then exposed to um, never infected individuals by rubbing them on the skin or in small circular needle perfor- perforations on the back of the hand or and in some cases sniffed in the nose or on cotton placed in one's nostrils. So that's they, in other words, this that's the way they it, were seeking to inoculate. People, but the question arose: uh, Should this, um, you know, really take place? Well, Cotton Mather, uh, according to this historical account, uh, wrote around 1714 uh, after being convinced by his African slave. Uh, by the way, notice it's slavery that's in Boston. By the way, here in 1714, who had been uh, variolated—that is, the slave had been. The procedure was not without risks. Variolated individuals were still contagious, and it was estimated that one out of three, uh, one yeah, one out of three, uh, no, one to three out of 100 died from more severe form of the disease due to the inoculation. And just as a parenthesis here, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, uh, preacher of the First Great Awakening in the United States um, and pastor of Northampton for a long time. Uh, eventually be, was called to be the president of Princeton uh, College, which had been the college in New Jersey and and then uh, became Princeton. Anyway, at the time, it was called the College of New Jersey and was a Presbyterian school. Um, he died six months after the fact because he had uh, overreact, had a reaction, not overreact, to the smallpox uh, inv- uh, uh, inoculation that he had received six months before. However, uh, just going to continue reading. However, this was substantial improvement over the uh, maximum 30% mortality uh, of natural infection, and the procedure gained acceptance and was employed in England uh, in by the uh, by the early 18th century. Uh, Yet, it says variolation was still treated with suspicion and and hostility in much of the rest of Europe, as mentioned by Voltaire and his own philosophical letters. And so that's the historical background and the debate that sets it up. And so it's, uh, I think uh, in light of what we are going through in our debate right now with COVID-19 uh, to read um, you know, this uh, article and just get some perspectives that this is not the first time that uh, the church believers and just the general public has been confronted with a major issue that uh, for which a inoculation or medicine was found uh, that there is debate about. And so uh, we it, it's good to just have a rec, you know, a, a reference point historically that 
where we are now, we've been before, and we'll probably be again. So, Paul, it's just an interesting historical overview. Yeah, um, I agree. I yeah. agree. You know, it, I had no idea that this was uh, – I was ignorant of, about this part of history, and I'm ignorant in a lot of parts of history. And, uh, you know, it's certainly good to know that we have had these debates before. And so that is the uh, – you know, that's the similarity there. I think, you know, there are differences between mm-hmm. that situation and the, the, the facts in this situation, as I understand them at least. Um, but it's, uh, but it's good. It, it, it does give you a, a different perspective. Yeah, it does. And, and, and by the way, one of the, uh, the parts that, uh, in the middle part of the article, there is a place that where might, we might feel some kinship as to what's happening with the mandate, uh, as the disease spread guards were ordered, this is in Boston for house, uh, ordered for houses where sick were isolated. But by the mid-June of 1721, the city was overwhelmed with cases, as historian Arthur Bell and uh, Richard uh, Shryak, I think it's been, uh, wrote in 1954, the disease was free to take its natural course, they concluded. One uh, has here a nice illustration of the effectiveness of isolation produces uh, as when practice often serious increases spread beyond the original foci. In other words, uh, sometimes uh, being holed up is not the best way to go because it has a greater opportunity for uh, contagiousness. And so to stop the smallpox outbreak and or to prevent it from returning, the best option was to increase immunity uh, in the population. And yet the uh, proponents of variolation encountered fierce resistance and there's where we get into the same thing that we're dealing with here. So whatever side you're on, you're going to find your position in this historical document and uh, see where where it all came down after all these years. So uh, a little good history is not, you know, if we fail to understand it, then we wind up in the same place again. Right. So uh, that's number yes, four. Sir. Number five. Um, brings us back to the question of um, the uh, human sexuality. It's uh, by David Linden, uh, who's a retired minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, living in Delaware now. A big uh, PCA correction by a small text. <clears throat> and in, in the small text he's referring to uh, is 2 Corinthians 7.1. And the 7, that Second uh, Corinthians 7 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, what is taking that one verse and using that as his title, here's a small text, Second Corinthians 7 1. And if we really understand it in the light of where, what we're wrestling with uh, about side A, side B, homosexuality, and all that, uh, he says, advocates of the current error, the, which is the side B error he's talking about, uh, esteem abstinence uh, from overt sin, uh, overt sin, yet they accept its unchanging influence in the heart and soul of celibate homosexuals. And he mentions Greg Johnson, who's the pastor of uh, Memorial PCA in St. Louis, said in a recent uh, Semper Ref article, Semper Ref's uh, new online magazine um, put out by the uh, progressive wing of the PCA, 
Uh, it's called the gay threat to the PCA that for 31 years, he has daily turned from homoeroticism to Jesus. Uh, in, he, in it, he says, it says further, I believe in mortifying and dwelling sin and the progressive sanctification. This makes many of us in the PCA ask what effect progressive sanctification has on and on unchanging indwelling sin if it's been going on for 31 years. So that's what um, Lyndon, Dr. Lynn is taking on uh, is if you're in progressive revelation, uh, sanctification, that is that day by day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled more and more, as the Shorter Catechism's language says, then how can we still be wrestling at the same point uh, 31 years later if there is no progress or progressiveness in the sanctification. So that's the the gist of what uh, uh, David Linden is arguing for here. And, and so he um, ends up by saying, uh, great reluctance insists in the PCA to embrace the simple truth that all of God's people are being made holy in sexual desires and that believing in this powerful grace is our duty. In this life, we have the covenanted hope of moving holiness in the direction of completion. Uh, this is just a good Westminster, and by that Westminster confession, and biblical thinking. To exclude such change in the, uh, in the category of sexual feelings is to uh, say that Paul is wrong. At this point, fervent objection may rise, such as, but our holiness has not been brought to completion. And I reply, uh, no one in uh, the PCA uh, says uh, it has been or will be in this life. <clears throat> so it, it, basically, he's arguing that uh, the perspective of the progressive revolution that, I mean, uh, sanctification that's being promoted uh, prominently today in some of the PCA is that if you don't get, if you're not immediately changed, uh, then uh, it, that's just the way I am and I accept it. While the other side saying, uh, following what they believe the scripture and the confession says, no, it's progressive in that you're making strides and you're moving in the right direction because the spirit is prompting you in that. So it's a, I think a very helpful article. So he says this one verse, I don't, probably many others, but this one verse he says really helps to encapsulate where the debate is really all about. Yeah, and and David Linden also backing up in the article. This this is my two favorite paragraphs. Satan whispers that cleansing in our spirits is not needed, that sexual desire is unchangeable, and that only in behavior can cleansing be expected. Further, that relief from it is so rare, we may give up hope and let it go for this life. After all, it's only an attraction, and God will fix it later, not now. Such teaching, he writes, in the PCA is disgraceful. In this context, it is indefensible to describe ministers as faithful who have not found any cleansing from this defilement. When a minister has a lifelong sexual appetite for another male, we are not supposed to question whether he is a holy man. This is theological baloney. When no progress with, within is even claimed, the debate is over, or it should be. There it is. Uh, and I think that's where that's where the debate is, right? 
uh, those number of words. And then this article is, uh, if you want to read more on Linden, this is about the 10th article he's written in this whole debate issue. So if you put his name in the search box here in the Eclora report, uh, they will all come up and you can read them in sequence. He's, he stayed the same throughout. Uh, he's focusing on different aspects of it, but basically comes down to the quotes that Paul just gave uh, with regard to is if we believe in progressive sanctification, uh, then there should be obvious progress. Even if it's minuscule, it should be moving away from the passions and the affections of the past, moving to the passion and affection that's set on conformity to Christ. Okay, number uh, six um, is interesting. Someone comes along who uh, says, I survived because of Bible Belt religion. Not many do that. Mostly we run away from Bible Belt religion. He says uh, evangelical leaders who make a great show of their dislike for Bible Belt religion really just dislike people of the Bible Belt. <laughs> That's his sort of uh, thesis uh, statement. Uh, the Bible Belt can be, you know, usually in the Deep South, maybe the Midwest, where uh, church life is full. And says um, he starts out with the first paragraph. There are almost as many churches as there are people in the small southern town where I live. You will scarcely scarcely meet a person who isn't a member of one or more of them, uh, though a few have uh, but few have faithfully attended Sunday services since uh, at least the Clinton administration. But even the local dope dealers and bootleggers can often quote long passages from the Bible with uh, scribal accuracy. While they may not, on the advice of counsel, admit to committing any crimes, they would be quick to confess many particular sins, and that is no small thing. So anyway, he says th that's the context of the this uh, Bible Belt uh, kind of uh, mentality. So he says, some time ago, one leading evangelical influencer rejoiced over the decline, quote, of the Bible Belt religion, commenting that it made bad people worse. Uh, more recently, another Christian pundit took another swing at the cultural Christianity of the South, one of his favorite punching bags, calling it a form of toxic religion, that is, at best, an expression of the faith to be survived. So what uh, the author here is uh, Brandon Meeks. What he basically argues here is while I agree with these folks wholeheartedly and full-throated devotion to Jesus Christ and would be preferable, he says, I can't find such uh, dedication even um, among our Lord's hand-picked apostles or in a single congregation since the strange winds began blowing at Pentecost. And he, he begins to say, let me just tell you my story and how the Bible Belt itself really helped me, especially at times that I had uh, really had some needs. And uh, so he is surviving it and growing uh, because of this. Just one more quote, Paul. Uh, where, where, were there doctrinal problems more than you could shake a stick at? Uh, but there was also an unvarnished devotion to the great commandments and so much such love covers a multitude of catechetical misfires uh the the bible belt christians who raised me uh, could not give you chapter and verse but they were always ready with a cup of cold water 
At the end of the day, it is the one who offers a cool drink that receives the prophet's reward, not the one who remembers all the names of the prophets. That's really good. And I, I love this article because of that. And it just shows you that God works through his church. The church has not been, you know, the church on earth is, is not perfect and it's not going to be perfect, you know, until the end, until Christ comes. And it just shows you that God works through a broken people, through people who, you know, put their faith in him to save them from their sins. And uh, like like you said, were there do- are there doctrinal problems or is another way to say, are there people that disagree on different aspects? Yeah, there are. Um, but uh, I think this is a good article. I think it's I think it's it needs to be said um, that some of these people who are critical of, quote, you know, the Bible Belt mentality really just don't like the people in the Bible Belt. And uh, that, that, that's what he says here, too, by the way. Yes. And that's exactly right. And just one other uh, part on that. It's since uh, the population movement within the United States is moving away from rural areas. A lot of smaller towns throughout the whole country, not just in the south, Midwest, Northwest, uh, Northeast, everywhere uh, are shrinking because so many of, uh, are leaving to go into the bigger cities or medium-sized cities in the suburbs, wherever. And um, so the churches there are also being affected. So it's it there's a great uh, dynamic demographic change, which is probably affecting the spiritual change or the ecclesiastical circumstance there. Uh, and yet it was people who came out of that process, even if they sort of kicked against some of the things that they thought was overly pietism or something of that nature. Uh, when they look back, they realized it gave them a stable, uh, concrete uh, foundational upbringing. So anyway, it's a it's a helpful article to read and converse and maybe share with uh, your a small group and uh, maybe uh, you yourself can do some reflection on how it affected uh, how growing up in a smaller town uh, really did encourage you to walk more sincerely with the Lord. Okay, number uh, seven is uh, sort of in the same vein, uh, but it just deals with one aspect of it. Can you hear the congregation singing? By, by Blake Long, uh, the worship team does not exist to put on a performance, but to simply lead the congregation. Uh, the uh, thesis here, and I think we've run some other articles like this by Blake Long, uh, where he talks about the importance of congregational singing and that we uh, actually hold uh, tactile books or a piece of paper in our hand as we singing. Uh, and he says, uh, can you hear the congregation singing? So he says, we err when we worship, when the worship team is simply too loud that we can't hear the congregation singing. It's becoming more of a performance in worship. Although I understand that the bigger the church, the harder it is to truly hear others, other voices. Uh, friend, are you looking for a church? Might I suggest that you go somewhere that has congregational singing? You can hear others singing with joy whether they are uh, on key or not. Either way, it's wonderful sound and pleasing to our Father in heaven. 
So his idea here is that congregational singing is uh, just a significant part of joining together. Uh, I've heard people, um, you know, that in uh, my hearing many times who would say, you know, I, I go to visit my children or my grandchildren and they take me to their church. And there are people there not only handing out uh, flyers or so forth about the ministry of the church, but they give you earplugs. Uh, they realize that some people can't handle the the volume. And uh, of course, you can't hear someone sing. So uh, if you go in there, you might need the earplug, especially in front of the woofers uh, that belting out the, the noise. So uh, a good article to, to say maybe we need to recapture the whole idea of uh, singing uh, and congregational singing where we hear one another as we're singing, as we, uh, in fact, the way the scripture puts it is that we are edifying one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So just in the singing, we're doing edification. Yeah, I I, to I totally agree. Um, I, I think um, from a worship standpoint, um, you know, is if is if you're a worship leader, it's just as long as you keep in mind the fact that you know you are not ushering these people into the presence of God. Jesus Christ does that. You you as a worship leader are. Um, essentially just kind of announcing hey look this is this is what we're all singing you know and and um you know if you if you've ever, i mean there are different services you know everybody kind of remembers but i mean when 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 you can hear the rest of your fellow congregants um singing praises to god i mean there is something special about that um and uh, it, like you said, it does edify each other as as well as bring glory to God. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's definitely a balance. And has it gotten, you know, it, it, does it does it get out of does the volume does it become a performance? Does it get out of control? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely does. I think we have, um, you know, this this article, you know, makes me reflect on what worship is and versus maybe what some churches have allowed it to become right there uh, sometimes as i'm doing my church consulting i always have come up to the thing that there are at least two things uh that people take seriously about uh, church uh they what they think about their pastor uh the primary at least the one they're most connected to if they're more than one pastor and uh, and their worship and uh those two things stand up above everything else that people either remember or have a hot problem with. So uh, it's a good article that encouraged that when you comes out tomorrow that you click on it and give some thought to it uh, as well. Well, we that was number seven. We already did number eight, which dealt with the professor at Old Dominion, uh, tied in with number three, dealing with the map or uh, minor attracted people or persons. So now we jump to number nine, which is uh, by Sarah Morris, uh, and she is writing as a laywoman to the Presbyterian Church in America, to the brothers, that is, she's a sister. She Now she's just saying, as a laywoman in the church, let me give some uh, input into uh, this matter about uh, what's taking place with the National Partnership and what Presbyterianism is. So brothers, we are Presbyterians uh, is the title. A 
very well organized clandestine political wing of our denomination has been exposed for being exactly what it is, despite many of us having been assured time and time again that the National Partnership was merely an executive fellowship organization akin to a type of pastor's support group. It turned out that wasn't the case. So she is, uh, Sarah Morris lives in Roanoke, Virginia, um, wrote this article to just as a letter uh, to her uh, uh, brothers, uh, ruling and teaching elders who are part of the partnership, and then all to the whole PCA, really. Uh, we're Presbyterians. What does that mean? It means that we have a, we have a, a, a you know, a confession of faith that we have uh, we made our vows to certain principles. Uh, we are also to be ones engaged in uh, discussion and deliberation that if there's anything that can be said about Presbyterians is that we do have the gift for gab. And uh, so you know, let's uh, wrestle with those the issues instead of um, trying to be so efficient that we just cut and dry uh, issues and uh, don't waste the time or give the time to discuss and debate issues that are really important. So here's a heartfelt plea uh, to the brothers in the PCA from a sister in the PCA about how she is. And uh, when I talk to Sarah, she says, uh, says, I just love Presbyterianism. I love to go to presbyteries and general assembly more than my husband because I enjoy the process. And when I see what's going on, it really is wounding. And I've uh, just the, just the intensity of her uh, uh, commitment to that is just wonderful to see. Yeah. So she's speaking out of that conviction. Yeah, and, and uh, this is my favorite part uh, when she's talking specifically about how the national partnership is apparently operating. She says operating in this fashion ensures that conclusions are reached with a large majority left out of the decision, uh, the decision-making process. I simply cannot emphasize this enough. A small group of elders who meet in private to discuss and decide on issues on behalf of the entire denomination and then send representatives from that group to presbyteries and general assembly with predetermined voting instructions, regardless of any conversation, discussion, input, or alternative counsel from the rest of the assembly of elders, this is not Presbyterian. This process is an unhealthy mutation of the example of early church government given to us in Acts 15, Galatians 2, and many other New Testament passages. I do not need to rehearse a lesson in church history you men ought to have a seminary education, she writes. And earlier in the article, she, uh, I think she uh, references her instinct, her maternal instinct of knocking some heads together uh, in the in the earlier article, which is yeah. which is a uh, very uh, you know uh, funny. <laughs> so. It is. So she is uh, she has a real wit to her, which is endearing, and I've told her that. Uh, but she does say this just to make sure we put it in context here that it isn't a scold. She says, please forgive me if I sound sanctimonious or insubordinate. It is not my intention. I'm just a mom wearily wrangling kids on Sunday. I do not wish to be contentious. It is my desire to be in complete submission to all of you. My husband is a teaching elder, so I possess great tenderness to, towards you men uh, who have been called to ministry. I have an idea of the road you travel and I love you for it. So it's coming from a tender heart 
Very uh, much. That is really, really wonderful. So that's number nine. And then <clears throat> number 10 um, is the shattering of evangelicalism in the American uh, Reformer magazine. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, The idea here is that um, there are things that are shattering and there's a response to uh, article um, uh, the that a number of articles that have sort of taken on evangelicalism that it's fracturing. Uh, for instance, uh, he refers to Peter uh, Weiner, um, a fellow in the ethics and public policy, wrote much a much cited article in the Atlantic entitled "The Evangelical World Is Breaking Apart," in which he contends that the evangelical churches are fracturing because they have not they have become politicized and tribal repositories of grievances. Uh, he, and he mentions also French, uh, David French, who agrees with Weiner and French contention uh, can be boiled down to this. Christians who are politically active more often than not have ex- exchanged Christian uh, faithfulness for the resentful rage that defines the contemporary political scene. Um, now, the on the other side, there's a reference to uh, Colin uh, Hansen, although um, shares, um, yeah, Colin Hansen's view more, which is while there are some difficulties, it's not about as uh, he doesn't, he's not as extreme in his analysis. Uh, what what about Hansen's concern that many pastors find more in common with even unbelievers who share their political and cultural assumptions than with believers who affirm the same doctrine? Surely this is a problem, isn't it? Not so fast. Here we would do well to step into old school scholastic mode and we distinguish. In other words, let's start working through this a little bit more. And so the rest of the article, he uh, works on, quote, the distinguishing of uh, the differences that are within uh, evangelicalism as is defined today uh, and not to try and dump on everybody that everybody uh, is in the same mold exactly and are saying the same thing. So while there may be uh, points of identification and similarity, uh, it doesn't mean that everybody's going down the same road at this point. So uh, I think it's important. It's a great article in, in that sense. It gives a broad overview, sort of a five, 10,000 foot uh, flyover to get a picture of the landscape as opposed to just walking in the forest and looking at the trees and getting lost, uh, not knowing how to get out of the forest. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, he gives this uh, C.S. Lewis quote here. It is since uh, Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I mean, you know, you think about it from a, from a standpoint of, you know, um, having more uh, Christians, uh, you know, in positions of power, in secular office, I mean, you know, how can we not say that that would be a better thing, a better society for the church to exist in, a better society for our uh, families uh, to exist in? I mean, you know, these are true things. These are very true things. And, you know, people sometimes in the evangelical world get nervous or, you know, they they start to think, well, you know, whoa, 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 you know, we need to have uh, you know, we don't need this bleed over, but I, I would say we need a lot more of it than than you think that we don't just in terms of I mean, you just take the basic concept of 
of murder, right? I mean, we all agree that murder is wrong and we, we all support that law. Well, murder is wrong, not because the government says it's wrong. Murder is wrong because God says it's wrong. And so, uh, you know, I mean, those those types of things are, uh, you know, reflect the morality of God. And uh, we need to be paying attention to those things as believers in this world. Uh, and I've talked about this before, Dominic, specifically, you know, in the American context, when you look at, uh, you know, the the rights that all citizens in this country have to be engaged, it doesn't mean that you have to be engaged, but you certainly have been giving, a, a, you know, a freedom of, uh, of input that uh, a lot of people throughout the centuries uh, did not have. And, and we do have that. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. So um, just this uh, number 10 article then about is it is it fracturing? Well, yeah, it's obvious and it's represented probably not only as we've said, uh, we see it in the Presbyterian Church in America. We see it in other Reformed churches and other broadly evangelical churches. Uh, and that's good. It's a healthy discussion that we need to have uh, to make sure that we are keeping ourselves uh, together. Uh, just one uh, little quote that Carl Truman is quoted as in a, from a podcast uh, Truman thus sees a major division in evangelicalism between two groups who don't rightly understand their pilgrim status. And he's a, this is both groups now. Uh, do we understand our pilgrim status that we're passing through? This is not our home. Those on the right who feel that a Christianized America is being stolen from them and an elite that tempts, attempts, uh, attempts appease uh, its many culture despisers, usually by acting, uh, accepting positions of the left. So he cancels the former, those who want to Christianize America, with the words of Christ, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before. If they persecuted me, they also persecute you. And the latter group, he rightly notes, uh, are on a fool's errand. So both are sort of get, um, you know, backhand as we would uh, to let's rethink what our pilgrim status is, that it doesn't have to be identified with a particular political persuasion uh, and conflict. We need a wholesome covenantal uh, church or ecclesiastical perspective during this uh, pilgrim pro- status. As I like to say sometimes in funerals, especially if and I can, it's appropriate um especially if I know the people, that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And and what that is just to summarize, that um, thinking that we will find our true satisfaction here such that we can take it with us is not going to happen. (coughs) So uh, let's make sure that that's the case. So, Paul, any final words that you have? Uh, no, I, I, it's been a pleasure uh, going over these top 10 as usual, Dominic. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to get to work. I'm going to get the mathematicians together uh, and going to be calculating your age here shortly. <laughs> well, uh, I know what the I know what the bottom line is because I've already figured it out. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's been a delight to uh, have you and work with you again, Paul. And the... Um, in this, the, the Akula Report and Weekly Review, the uh, November 22, 2021 uh, edition, when the newsletter shows up tomorrow in your inbox, 
uh, take a few moments and uh, look at the top 10, click on them and just uh, per, scroll through them. And if they grab your interest, you can set them aside, uh, bookmark them for later reading, read them right then, share them with some other friends, forward them along. Uh, but this is a time for growth, development, learning. And if you want to be a part of making the next top 10, the top 10, uh, go at any time uh, to the Accord Report every day and you can uh, see if there's anything of what has been posted for the day that is of interest to you. Just click on it because we give enough uh, with the title and a, just a one line tease and then a brief paragraph, a book quote that that may satisfy and you go on to something else. And if you want to read more, you just click on it and it opens up. So we are delighted to present this to you and great uh, opportunity to serve you and the church. And thank you for being faithful readers of the Accord Report. Trust that they will be, uh, these articles will be beneficial to you and to the uh, walk that you have with the Lord. Until next time, we wish you God's blessing. <music>